You're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Federal Bureau of Investigation just announced the results of Operation Cross Country. This morning, we talked to Steve Merrill, FBI Special Agent in Charge for Hawaii in the Pacific, about efforts to track down missing and endangered children and to put traffickers behind bars. The operation involved law enforcement partners, including local police departments and nonprofit groups. This is the 13th year the campaign has been underway to help track down vulnerable youth who can fall prey to sex traffickers. Uh, this latest effort rescued 59 missing children, including 11 across our state. Here's Merrill. Two of our biggest priorities in the office are protecting the keiki and protecting the kapuna. So uh, in this instance, we really uh, jump in uh, 100% and try to work with our partners, both in the you know the government sector and the other law enforcement agencies, as well as with our uh, partners in the NGO world to try to recover children. We're always doing this 12 months a year, but particularly capitalizing on the uh, Operation Cross Country resources that are available to us nationwide. As you mentioned, we do the same thing here in Hawaii and really spend quite a bit of effort uh, trying to identify, locate, and hopefully recover as many children as we can during this time period. And the national coverage that I saw said that, what, this was over, what, a two-week period? That's right. Uh, again, the, we're doing this all year round, but yeah, we're really focusing on this particular issue for about two weeks. Here in Hawaii, uh, the focus was even a shorter period. Most of the activity we undertook on the streets, of course, there's a lot of lead up to it with intelligence gathering and such, but occurred late last week. And so tell us about the, the numbers. Nationally, I, I think, I believe it was 200 children that they were able to help. Um, what are the numbers here? Yeah, so that number 200, that's, uh, you know, victims of sex trafficking. So that may or may not include children, minors. But here in Hawaii, the statistics, I'll tell you, are strictly uh, related to minors, to children. So uh, here on Oahu, we uh, recovered six children, which was just fantastic, great work by our team. And we also had activities in other islands, and we recovered five children uh, on the big island, and uh, we uh, identified and located one on Maui as well. And so this is, like you mentioned, a concerted effort with local law enforcement, correct? Yes, but uh, it's not limited to law enforcement. Uh, we all, I can't thank enough the uh, National Center for uh, Missing and Exploited Children. They play a huge role in this as well. Okay, and is there anything more you can share about the suspects that are involved um, in, you know, trafficking these children? You know, what we do is uh, once we recover the children and make sure that they get the resources they need, we refer the cases in, in most instances to the local prosecutors. So uh, at this point, it would be premature to give out that information. I will say, however, though, uh, that I think one of the circumstances that make our situation in our state unique is that many of the children that are missing here in our state are uh, runaways and aren't necessarily living in houses uh, and homes uh, with with family members. A lot of them, unfortunately, are located living off the street. So in that case, uh, they tend to have less adults who we are going to arrest than uh, the average case across the country. That must be a real challenge, though, if these youngsters are out there, whether it's, you know, Waikiki or, or somewhere in the more rural areas. You know, getting that intel is not easy. Catherine, you're exactly right. Uh, our, our team is uh, really dependent upon our intelligence analysts and other uh, job roles in our office that aren't necessarily agents or officers. Because, yeah, I mean, uh, there isn't a great deal of information available for uh, you know who is living at a homeless encampment, as an example. So we really do have to do a, a great job so that the agents and officers, when they're on the street, 
looking actively for uh, these victims that they have information to, to work off of. And it really is, again, a tribute to the entire team effort that through that information and information provided by the National Center for uh, Missing and Exploited Children that we're able to find and locate and hopefully get resources for these children. And, you know, there was a case recently in Kailua where community members rallied. You know, they were concerned for a young woman, I think, who they believe, you know, had been out on the streets for a while and uh, died. We don't know why, you know, what the cause was, but they were just worried that she might have been a victim of trafficking. Yeah, that's always obviously a concern. Uh, you know, it, it's hard to say until we speak to the victims. Uh, some uh, of the children are, you know, are have left homes and uh, are on their own, but some, of course, are under the custody, if you will, of a, of a criminal who's exploiting their vulnerability, I guess is the best way to say it. What's the message that you want to get out there to the community? We see a lot of stories on the mainland where children are rescued, you know, because they did ask for help if they were in a circumstance where they were around people that they could reach out to somebody. Yeah. And I hope that, you know, every family looking for their child and every child themselves are, are looking to escape uh, a vulnerable situation and, and get uh, the help that they need. So one of the uh, goals of our operation cross country is, you know, to recover these victims, put them in a safe place and hold the perpetrators accountable if there are perpetrators uh, responsible. And all these activities will make our community safer. You know, any help from the public is always really appreciated. Uh, again, we can't do this alone. And I also wanted to mention the uh, large contributions made by our victim specialists that really work on our team as well to help not just ensure the victims are safe, but that they're linked with the community, state, and federal resources that are available to them. Yeah, that follow-up just to make sure that they can get whatever treatment they need. That's right. And because you do handle the Pacific area, I know, oh gosh, a few years back, there were two young girls, two sisters that were missing, I think, on, off the island of Saipan. And we hadn't heard any follow-up. And, and, you know, it's a tiny island. Anything you can share on any update? Well, thank you for asking, because this is always at the forefront of our mind. Uh, yes, at our office, in we have an office in Guam and Saipan, and they are uh, still looking for the Lux sisters. Uh, Palomo Luck uh, would now be 22 years old, and Milena, her sister, would be 21. I'm afraid I don't have any updated information to provide other than we're still actively looking for them and trying to put them in a safe place. Uh, and hopefully uh, we can get information from the public. We have a, a tip line for that. Uh, in fact, it's 800-843-5678, which is 800-THE-LOST, if you look on your phone, as well as you can find posters about their information on www.missingkids.org. So uh, thank you for asking, because, yes, uh, it's very important that we get information from the public to help us in that recovery. Yes, because, you know, the fear is that, you know, maybe they were transported off the island in there, who knows where. But, yeah, it's just a concern for these young children, you know, who are vulnerable. Exactly. The last time we talked, you were concerned about the sexting and the folks that were targeting uh, young boys in the game rooms, that kind of thing. Um, anything more on that? In general, we're always looking at emerging fraud trends, uh, in, since you brought that up. And uh, the sextortion, yes, does uh, remain and increasingly so uh, a, a big threat to children and, and others as well. As we spoke before, one of the real unique things about that classification of that fraud scheme with sextortion is that the victims aren't comfortable coming forward to the law enforcement. So, uh, and, and oftentimes we're unaware of 
the victimization of those kids uh, and others because, of course, they're embarrassed to admit that they were not just defrauded but put in compromising situations. So, so that remains a big part of what we do uh, in our efforts. And I think what a lot of the parents don't understand, if they're not gamers themselves, is that when the child or, or anyone is you know, using a game, oftentimes, obviously, their visual direction is specifically looking at the game, but also they tend to wear headphones. And while they're in this virtual reality, if you will, it enables people who are in the virtual world also in this game to talk directly to them and give a direct line to these potential victims. And it's not just a matter of looking and playing a game. It's very interactive with other players. And this is how a lot of the criminals use that opportunity to infiltrate and get really in the heads of these kids. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate your time this morning. It's always a pleasure. Nice to talk to you again. That was FBI Special Agent in Charge Stephen Merrill talking to us this morning about efforts to track down missing and endangered children. Operation Cross Country was a nationwide law enforcement effort which last month helped track down 200 sex trafficking victims as well as 59 missing and endangered children, including about a dozen here in the islands. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Today we're taking a closer look at the history of the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific, often referred to as Punchbowl Cemetery. As far back as the 1890s, officials in Hawaii were looking at Punchbowl as a possible cemetery, but it wasn't until the 1940s that the plan took hold. The first major push came from a $50,000 congressional appropriation for a national cemetery in Honolulu, but it became apparent that that amount wouldn't cover construction costs, so the project was postponed. By 1947, however, Congress and various veterans organizations requested that a permanent burial site be created for thousands of World War II servicemen who had not yet been interred. The Army revamped the old plans, Congress eventually approved the funding, and construction began. The cemetery opened to the public on July 19, 1949, several months after the first servicemen were laid to rest there. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us the exact date when those first servicemen were interred at the cemetery? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag from HPR.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing housing for the homeless, including U.S. Vets, with its Kamaoku Kauhale Tiny Homes community. NareetHawaii.com. seen some recent successes in the area of sustainability. Earlier in the year, we featured an effort uh, by the community to locally produce their own eggs. Remember when egg prices went through the roof because of the outbreak of bird flu on the mainland? Well, today we turn our attention to broiler chickens. HPR reporter Catherine Cluett-Pactel joins us this morning from the Friendly Isle. Good morning. Good morning. So, yeah, so you're familiar with this, uh, with the egg-laying uh, project, right? Yeah, so it's it's an ongoing program, the Poultry Egg Production Project, or PEEP. It started, as you said, a few years ago to address the need to import about 100,000 eggs per month on Molokai, which is kind of a mind-blowing number. How can the island produce a portion of these locally? That's the question they were trying to address. Um, the organization, the nonprofit that launched this program is called Sustainable Molokai, and this program has been extremely successful since it launched. Locally raised Molokai eggs are now available in a majority of grocery stores on Molokai, as well as being sold privately and through Sustainable Molokai's mobile market program. And Jamie Ronzello is um, the sustainability program director at Sustainable Molokai. She says the program is really taking off with some Several farmers that went through the program that are started small and are now going to really large-scale operations, which is which is exciting. So now this broiler chicken program or Mahiai Moa program on Molokai is dovetailing with that. So their goal, similarly, is to reduce the island's dependence on the barge uh, and reduce the number of um, meat chickens that need to be brought to Molokai. There are 18 participants. It's a pilot program, and the first cohort started in April. Manu Adolfo is a Ho'olehua homesteader, and he and his family also participated in that PEEP egg program, and now they are participants in the Mahiaimoa program, raising uh, the meat chickens. Um, he talks about his goals as a participant. I kind of feel like it's important for a lot of us on the island, you know, being able to provide for our own food. But it, it was also just very rewarding for, for me and my family to just be able to raise the chickens and go out there and collect the eggs and do all that stuff. And so when they had the opportunity to do the broiler birds, that was something that I thought that I could also do to help with the sustainability. I definitely want to be able to not go to the store to go buy chicken and just provide that for my family for sure, but also the opportunity to sell to the community and start moving in the direction of self-sustainability as an island, as a community. So that's kind of like the end goal. I mean, it's great that they're, you know, taking this program uh, to a whole nother level. And I love the fact that it's called PEEPS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so PEEP is the egg program specifically. The, the Mahiai Moa program is, is now this broiler chicken program. And each participant in the program gets education with hands-on visits to um, Julius Ludovico of J. Ludovico Farm on Oahu, as well as virtual classes with him. Each participant also gets $4,000 in supplies to get started to build their coop, as well as two batches of chicks that are bred specifically um, for meat. They get business expertise on how to file permits, taxes, all those other administrative things of running a business. 
Funding for this came from the USDA Beginning Farmer and Rancher Development Program, as well as the Administration for Native Americans. So the program is targeted at Native Hawaiian farmers and beginning farmers, which uh, comprise the participants, the 18 participants, this first cohort. And one of the keys of making this program work is a partnership with the Molokai Livestock Cooperative. That's Molokai's local slaughterhouse. And the grant funds, uh, the grant that funds this project uh, is also paying for a new specialized certified poultry slaughter unit that's going to be coming to Molokai this fall. So that'll be a huge help for these farmers raising uh, the meat chickens. Um, Jamie Ronzello is Sustainable Molokai Food Sovereignty Program Director, and she talked about how important this part of the program is. So we put a survey out into the community before we started this program to see, like, was there a need for people interested in this program? And then what what elements of the program would they be interested in? Is it, do they need the supplies? Do they need the knowledge? Do they even want to process themselves? And resoundingly, there was a big majority that wanted to raise birds. They want to consume the birds, but there was this, a good percentage that was like, really happy if someone else just did the processing. So there is the ability to be able to do that home processing for sale. You still have to have a stamp from USDA, it's just an exemption stamp. So we wanted to give them the option of like, if you just don't want to deal with the paperwork, because a lot of people don't want to have to go through the process with the Department of Health. The cost, the associated fees, the paperwork, all of that. And so partnering with Molokai Livestock will give them the option just to basically farm what the farmers want to do. They just raise the animals, raise the livestock, and then be able to bring it to a marketplace and not have to deal with all the other bureaucratic stuff that sometimes comes along with processing. Yeah, and that's a good point, you know, because it's hard enough to find farmers but yeah, processing is a whole other, you know, aspect to the business. It is. So that option of partnering with the Molokai Livestock Cooperative sort of frees up the farmers to, again, just farm and, and raise the animals. Um, Lori, Lori Pastrana is Sustainable Molokai's Manager of Farmer Training, who's been leading this program. And for her, the program is all about just providing a choice. You go into the store, you can choose to spend a little bit more on that fresh local meat, or you can get the box chicken uh, from the store, which is a little bit cheaper. There will be a price difference in that. She also shared her experience with how people get their food and how that's changed over generations, as well as changing attitudes. My mom, them come from a generation where like the store wasn't really common for them. They raised everything themselves. Like they gather from the ocean, they raised their chickens. I feel like it's something that people do here, but it's not big enough to be able to really make a difference in our stores, you know. And also, I believe, like, as a society, we've come to this point where, like, it's so easy to just go to the store and buy it. Myself, personally, my mom did all of that. And then, you know, things just got easy for them. Like, oh, they had to, to raise the animals, garden, gather. Like, it was such a hard life for them that when they had the convenience, it was like, sure, take it. I think as a society, like, we sometimes go for convenience. But now we're kind of going back to it because we're seeing how much convenience has affected us. Our, our children, our learning, our health, all of that is being impacted, and so it impacts our community. I think like this will make a heavy impact, though. You know, what can you tell us about, like, the feed for these chickens? So the feed is something that I was curious about because the feed is actually one of the biggest expenses in raising um, animals in general, but specifically the broiler birds because the feed needs to be really protein rich, really nutrient rich. And I asked um, Jamie Ronzello about is this an option that Molokai is looking into to raise its own feed? And really, 
Several groups have looked into it, but the cost of processing and preparation so far just seems to be too high to make it worth it, which is kind of unfortunate, but it's also something to look at developing in the future. And one thing that really surprised me in learning about the program is how fast the turnaround from hatching to slaughter is. It's six to eight weeks, which is really quick. Um, and Manu Adolfo talked about that too in, in going from the egg program to this meat program was just the mentality of raising birds for eggs versus meat. Uh, you sort of, for egg layers, you develop this long-term relationship with them and he was also really surprised to learn about this quick turnaround and how it's just, you know, you, you don't care for the birds any any less, but it's for him and his family just getting used to that quick turnaround. You're always getting new birds in. And it's it's been a, an interesting learning process for all of them, it sounds like. And one of the questions that I asked was for Jamie uh, was really what success means. And she talked about how it's not a number Success really just means access to local chicken, walking into the stores and being able to buy it there, having that option. So I think this program will provide that eventually, and it's, it's, a, it's a growing process um, with the egg program. You know, it started small, and it's, it's been continuing to develop. So it'll be exciting to see what the future brings. Yeah, no, it, it is. And, you know, good for Molokai for, for trying these things and trying to help their community. But thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. Talk to you next week. All righty. That was HVR's Catherine Kluwit-Pactall talking to us about Molokai reclaiming its past as a breadbasket, producing food for our community. Read more of her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. I would rather, I would rather go flying than to see you walk away. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Dr. Hank Wesselman, the author of The Reenchantment. And next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about a shamanic path to a life of wonder. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra's Sheraton Starlight Festival. Joanne Folletta conducts selections from Wagner's Ring Cycle and others from the Operatic Canon, August 12th at the Waikiki Shell. MyHSO.org. The silent invasion of invasive species. Uh, are agricultural officials doing enough to sound the alarm? That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beach Chad Blair is on the line today. Good morning, Chad. Hi, Catherine. Good morning to you. Yes. So the story we're talking about is by Kirsten Downey. Right. And I, you know, you mentioned silent invasive species. I think two of those are the little fire ants. 
uh, and the coconut rhinoceros beetle. That third one, the cokey frog. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a bit noisy. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to make a, too much laughter about that. It is a serious concern, all three. And yes, the question is coming from State Senator Jared Keo, Keohu Kalole. He represents Kaneohe and Kailua, and he's been hearing all sorts of concerns. He calls uh, this a simultaneous crisis, three different infestations. Let me just briefly delineate those. When it comes to the coconut rhinoceros beetle, apparently they have been spreading uh, to other islands. And of course, we know that this affects palm trees. There's reports of, and this is not an understatement, 10,000 koki frogs in the Waimanalo area. And then the other thing that the senator has learned about is at least 30 active little fire ant infestations. And so he is demanding answers. He has written a letter uh, to Sharon Hurd. She's the new director of the Department of Agriculture. Uh, he does feel this is something that has really reached a new level uh, and it's getting out of hand. Yeah, and so you wonder, should we be, you know, making uh, more noise about this? Uh, you know, I mean, the, the thought of 30 sites where they've got these ants really just gives me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, they are, they are not pleasant. They bite both humans and, and animals, is my understanding. Uh, Director Hurd, uh, she did talk to Kirsten and said that she's working on a formal response to Senator Keoho Kalole. But in the meantime, she did tell Kirsten that uh, the Department of Ad takes this very seriously, that it's all hands on deck. Uh, she is collaborating uh, with other departments as well as outside agencies. Uh, but there are some complications here. Uh, Sharon Hurd says, look, this is not a new challenge. We've known about this. And by the way, there's been some funding um, frustrations. The Department of Ag has asked for more money. They didn't get it uh, this last go around of the session. You might recall there was all sorts of problems with the state budget being settled in the, in the, in the final hours. Uh, but that money is important in no small part because apparently the supplies that are used for eradication efforts, the cost have really gone up as have so much has gone up price wise in the world war in Ukraine, COVID, and, and so forth. Well, you know, I know, too, where some of these infest, infestations have popped up, you know, places like Nahiku on Maui, they were doing the aerial treatments, uh, you know, in those uh, parts that are pretty remote. You know, here on Oahu, I know Kualoa Ranch was doing their bit to kind of, uh, you know, beat back the populations that they found there. But, yeah, all those sites just need monitoring, and some of them are hard to get to. They are. And as the senator uh, points out, th these are threats uh, to the environment and to agriculture uh, and uh, something needs to be done. The senator also expressed some concern that, gee, how come the Department of Ag, you know, didn't tell us more about this when they were going through the, the legislature, uh, which is, you know, just convened earlier this year. They, he feels like maybe they didn't fully disclose the concerns about what was going on. And one of the interesting details he writes about or he told Kirsten about is that some of these uh, these uh, invasive species actually may be transported uh, through plants uh, from nurseries going from this neighborhood or even different islands. And that's something that is very serious as well, which I should just, by the way, raise another point. One of the things that the story points out is if you see these things, these fire ants, these uh, CRBs, that's the acronym for the beetle, uh, as well as the Koki frogs reported. Now call the Department of Ag, let the senator know, uh, because that would help having the community, if you will, be the first line of defense. Yes, and, and I know the story talks about how I think some members in the community said, hey, we volunteered to do some things, but there were some liability concerns. 
Yeah, there are, it's a little more complicated than that. Uh, but there's also the fact that there was a program dealing in particular with the coconut rhinoceros beetle. Uh, the program had lapsed. Apparently, there was a problem with the rule. They're working to try and remedy that. There's any number of issues to go around to blame. But uh, one expert that Kirsten did talk about said, you know, overall, the state has really, uh, it's been inad inadequate is the word that was used to describe uh, the response to these threats that really alarm bells should have been going off months and months ago. And I hate to use a, a, a cliche, but the argument is that the state has kicked uh, the can down the road rather than dealing with this uh, promptly. And of course, as, as we all know, these things only spread. And we, of course, have an island community. Yes, yeah. Or at least get someone to say, we've lost the war with this particular species. Just so, you know, it's real clear the, the state they were in. But thank you so much, Chad. You're welcome. Take care, Catherine. All righty. That was Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read uh, Kirsten Downey's story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org Do you love classical music so much you want to share it with the community? We're looking for a new part-time host for HPR 2, your home for classical music. Candidates should have a strong understanding of classical music, radio broadcasting, be comfortable with public speaking, and perform well under pressure. Learn more on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org jobs. Support for HPR comes from Ala Moana Hotel by Mantra, offering guests rooms and suites with ocean, mountain, and city views, and a lobby reflecting a blend of Hawaii's tropical colors. Reservations at alamoanahotel.com. have got a ruby red gem for, of a bird for you today, the northern cardinal. This songbird has been calling Hawaii home since the early 20, 20th century, so you're probably already familiar with its call. Thanks to the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology, we have got your Manu Minute. Here's Professor Patrick Hart from the University of Hawaii at Hilo. Northern cardinals are among the most common and recognizable birds in towns, backyards, and even some forests across Hawaii. Introduced to Hawaii in 1929, they're also one of the most abundant birds in North America, though they still don't occur naturally in most of the western states. About nine inches long from the tip of their bill to the end of their tail, males are a vivid red color with a red crest, a black mask and chin, and a large bright orange bill. All of these colors are obtained from eating carotenoid pigments in their food. The females also have the bright orange bill, but otherwise are mostly brown with a bit of red on their wings, tail, and crest. Juveniles can sometimes be mistaken for females. However, their gray-black bills don't turn orange until they're about three months old. 
Males advertise their territorial boundaries and try to impress females with a large variety of songs throughout the year. Most of us in Hawaii have heard these songs, even though we might not realize it was northern cardinals that were making them. See if you can recognize any of these common northern cardinal songs. Also known in Hawaiian as Manu Ula Ula, or Redbird, northern cardinals use their large nutcracker-like bills to open large seeds and fruits and to consume a variety of insects. They're among the few non-native birds that can commonly occur in our native forests and are even common in our low elevation forests where there's too much mosquito-transmitted avian malaria for the native birds to survive. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a group of people with a passion for supporting the refuge. More about volunteering at friendsofhakalauforest.org. time for the answer to today's backyard quiz. Today we focused on the history of the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific, what is more commonly known as Punchbowl Cemetery. As far back as the 1890s, officials in Hawaii contemplated using a site atop Punchbowl Crater as a cemetery, but it wasn't until uh, the 1940s that construction plans got off the ground. Congress set aside $50,000, but that wasn't enough to fund construction, so the plan languished. By 1947, however, Congress and veterans organizations again pushed for a permanent burial site for thousands of World War II servicemen who had not yet been interred. After the Army took a second look, Congress approved the necessary funding. The cemetery opened to the public on July 19, 1949, but that was several months after the first servicemen were laid to rest there on January 4, 1949, which was the answer to today's backyard quiz, but nobody got that. You have a quiz to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. While our state has been building its film and television industry as a whole over the last few decades, some folks on Kauai have been quietly focusing on building the talent there. The Kauai Film Academy was founded in 2010, and it served as an incubator for the development of student-driven films that focus on issues that teens struggle with. The Academy also provides technical behind-the-camera job training and on-set experience with industry standard equipment. This month, it will release its first feature film titled Too Much Life. Elliot Lucas is one of the co-founders of the Academy and a producer on the film. He talked with the Conversations Russell Subiano about the making of the film. Can you talk about the origins of the Kauai Film Academy? You know, my partner and I who founded the, the Film Academy 10 years ago, we worked on movies that you know came to Kauai. You know, Kauai has a really rich movie history here, you know, going all the way back to the Elvis days, but in the last 10 years has been, you know, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies and Hobbs and Shaw, and then, the, you know, one of the latest ones was Jungle Cruise. And through the years, we've always 
you know, as filmmakers tried to get jobs on these movies and, and yeah, we did work on them and, you know, in low kind of level positions. But what we discovered was that it's not really a sustainable career as filmmakers to kind of pursue getting jobs on these movies in the way that it's working because they're bringing in all of their specialty people and there isn't much training on Kauai to the point where there's people here that can do these kind of upper level jobs, like being a script supervisor, being a boom pole operator, all of these different jobs that they're employing kind of tends to be more of like production assistant, location kind of help, that kind of stuff. And coupling with the fact that sometimes there's gaps between these big movies for years. I mean, there was a period in 2015, 2016, where there was just nothing coming. And it's like, how do you have a sustainable career in Hawaii if, if you're, all you're doing is kind of waiting around for the next thing? And when it does come, it's great, but we want more control over our filmmaking destiny. And so um, the first step of the Film Academy or you know how it came to be was we want to start training our people here to get these upper level jobs. And it was through working with kids on the island, you know, mainly starting out as a after school program at the high school. And then we then moved on to creating our own nonprofit. You know, we worked with kids, we created short stories and, and documentaries and things that they wanted to do. Then this idea for this movie came about and it really became the catalyst for everything that we do because we said, okay, well, if we're just going to kind of sit around and wait for movies to come here, why don't we make something ourselves? We have all the tools here and the, the technology is advancing so much and we're using the same cameras they do. We're shooting in the same locations that they pay millions of dollars to shoot and it's right in our backyard. I mean, there's no reason why we couldn't make something of a Disney caliber movie yeah. ourselves. And so uh, that's what we started to do. We wrote a movie based around what the kids wanted to do, you know, because a lot of the kids that we work with on the island Sometimes when they go through the film academy, they, they find out that they actually want to be in front of the camera. Or some people think they want to be in front of the camera and they end up being great crew members and they like working behind the camera. It was only natural that we would make a movie centered around kids because that's who we're all around all the time and that's what they're excited about. So spent two years you know, writing the script for Too Much Life with the kids. And we did a Kickstarter campaign in 2017. You guys were able to raise over 100000 on on that Kickstarter. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, it, it was in actually the top 20 highest funded movies ever on Kickstarter, which is kind of a really got us thinking like, hey, you know, people really want to see more films like this. And there was a lot of local support for it. You know, we raised that money on Kickstarter. We went full into production and we did an island-wide casting. 400 people from around the island came out for the casting call, and we went through the process of shooting the movie for two years with all these different kids around the island and 215 shooting days. Wow. <laughs> so it was a daunting task because, for one, it, it, it was a complete voluntary thing. A, they were all doing it because they wanted to be a part of something really big. That's what we all kind of dream about, right? It's like, we kind of make shorts and we make documentaries and stuff, but we always wish we were on the set of Blade Runner. You know, we always wish we were making a feature. And so for all of us to be a part of something that's really big was very exciting. And a lot of the kids got to get serious roles where they got to show 
how good actors they really are. Very serious and dramatic roles, but also comedy too. And uh, it was a long process with not having a, a real budget. But yeah, we got through it and we're, we're at the finish line now. Going back to the Academy real quick, you were saying that you guys have been around for about 10 years and, and it kind of started out as an after-school program. How did the things that the kids learned at the Academy, how, how did that translate to the production side? Were there kids that worked on the crew as well? Absolutely, yeah. I would say 99% of the crew of this movie were between the ages of 12 and 16 years old. Like our focus puller, AJ, was 14 at the time. Our boom operator, his name was Q Valdez. He was 14 too. Almost everyone on the crew, they were kids. And the thing about the film academy and how it kind of, this movie became sort of, not really a catalyst, but that was the film academy. And I, I really believe that when it comes to teaching filmmaking at the academy or wherever, there's nothing better than on-the-job training. So that's what we decided to do. It was really like, you know, it wasn't like, okay, we're going to train, 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 and then make this movie. It was more like, let's make a movie. We're probably going to screw up a lot, but <laughs> through this process, we're all going to learn what it's really like. And there's nothing like that. There's nothing like being on the set, and it starts raining, and you're running out of time, and you're all having to think of, how are we going to get through this? What are we going to do to solve these problems? What do we do about the chickens crowing and you know everything else that you know you can't learn by just reading about it? And that was that was really it. Making this movie was the film academy. It was training. It's on the job training. That's how you really learn, you know. I think a lot of the lessons that they learned, a lot of the skills that they picked up during the production process, that'll translate. In later in life, if, if they want to continue in the film industry, but it seems like those are foundational lessons that'll translate probably to anywhere in life moving forward. Oh, yeah, for sure. Caitlin, our, our main actress, she was a, a miracle, to be honest. I mean, when this movie plays at the Hawaii Theater on the 19th of August, I will have witnessed a miracle happen. <laughs> the reason I say that is because there was no one on this island that could have done what she did. And somehow she got the role. It was her dedication to the project that ultimately made it happen. And I mean, this, this thing could have fallen apart so easily over the course of these six years of working on it. But Caitlin's going to give a speech before the movie plays about the Film Academy. And her parents say this, the movie did change her life. It, it taught her serious discipline and sticking with something for, for a long time and believing in something. And that's really gratifying, for, especially for a kid. Can you imagine being 14 years old and signing up for something and sticking with it for four years yeah. instead of hanging out with your friends, filming a movie? I mean, it's, it takes so much dedication for so long. I mean, it's hard enough to get a kid to go to baseball practice for a season, you know, right. not miss a day. And hundreds of people are all counting on you. And, and so, yeah, there's definite life lessons learned through this thing that will translate. And even just the, like on the filmmaking side for the crew, I mean, I stand by that the 14-year-old kids that worked on this movie could get a job anywhere. And they would have more experience than most people. They know how to use walkie-talkies. They understand how the camera works, focus pulling. I mean, they, they have 
big picture knowledge of all the inner workings of it. I do talk to a lot of local artists, whether they're in film or television or music, and a lot of, or one of the themes that a lot of them touch on is how much talent there is in Hawaii and how they want to showcase or, you know, be part of showcasing the talent that is here in Hawaii. When you have gone through this process, starting with creating the Academy and going through this film process, what do you think it says about the talent on Kauai? Oh, that it's here. You know, we just need the tools and the organization to make it happen. You know, I think that we made a movie that looks like a $5 million movie for $100,000 because of all the people that were involved, the locations, all the props and the wardrobe. It's all done by people here. You know, and so what our goal is with this movie is that this isn't just like a one-off thing. This is kicking off a bigger dream, which is to create high-level movies in the state of Hawaii with our people. Big money people might look at this and go, hey, you know, you guys just made a $5 million movie with nothing. What could you actually do with a $5 million budget? So we want to get to a point where we're making a movie a year as opposed to one every seven. You know, this one was very difficult because we had to prove that we can do it. And that was one of the biggest struggles making the movie was it's kind of like convincing people that we can do it believing that we can make things that maybe not even Netflix can make here because we know all the people, we know the secret location. Like I said, it's like in our backyard. And so, you know, of course, I mean, there's talent here for sure. And I think that this movie does that. I think when people watch it, they're going to be blown away. I believe that people will be mind blown when they see it because of how big the movie is. And it's going to change the way that they think. Judging by the production quality of the trailer, like I said before, it really gives me a real Disney Channel vibe. And I've got four kids, so I've seen a ton of Disney Channel movies. I know that the film will premiere at the Hawaii Theater on August 19th. Can you tell our listeners how they can get tickets? So you can get tickets at the Hawaii Theater website, hawaiitheater.com. We're going to have a red carpet out front. We're going to do the step and repeat. So anybody who goes, you're going to be you know, walking the red carpet. We might actually even shut the road down in front of the theater. We're working with the county right now about that. So that'll be pretty cool. You know, it's a pretty picturesque marquee out there. It should be pretty fun. Thanks so much for your time today, Elliot. Really appreciate you talking to me. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for listening. That was Kauai Film Academy co-founder Elliot Lucas talking with HPR's Russell Subiano about the new feature film, Too Much Life. It'll premiere at the Hoy Theater uh, Saturday, August 19th, 7 p.m. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website later today. And we're going to leave you with the trailer for the film, Too Much Life. My name is Harper Hudson, and I go to Garden Island School. My followers always ask, how do you become president every year? Well, I have a good plan. So you have a meeting with the president of the art club at 8.30. That's Levi. He checks all my posts. It's called analytics. He's smart. Thanks. Then there's Reina. She gets my drink. I'll hold your bag. And holds my bag. This is Marley. She designs all my outfits. It's Harper Hudson. It's perfect. This is going to be so easy. Is she really going to save nature? She's going to save nature? Check it. You blocked me and unfollowed you, and you're out of the social media club. 
I don't care. I've got my social club right here. They're called friends. I need a new plan. I've got tons of dirt on Jamie. I want to know everything. Read the accounts and spread the rumors. They know who I am. Our beloved Centennial Palm Tree has been seriously damaged. Well, that didn't work. Miss Hudson, one more misstep from you and the election is over. Do you understand? You can't do that. I can see your hand. Big waves, bigger. <laughs> Wait until you save nature. You're welcome. She ran from class. That's not you. Um, I always do that. It's the work, right? This is a really good plan. I surf. Do you think Jamie's gonna save nature? Nature's a big place. now but up tomorrow we hear about the Honolulu Fire Department's Fire Explorers program and how it's helping shape Oahu's young people for a career in the department and beyond. Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line 808-792-8217 or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something? Find our archive shows online by searching for the Conversation Podcast on Spotify or Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow, won't you, for more of the conversation.